Welcome into Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace, coming at you. A little late night pod action on Wednesday, June 7th. Just got done watching Game 3 of the NBA Finals, Nuggets versus Heat. Uh, of course, the Nuggets were able to come out on top in this one, and we have a lot to talk about. Uh, last time I spoke with you guys, I kind of gave a preview of the NBA Finals. Still trying to was still trying to reconcile whatever happened to my Boston Celtics. Uh, we're somewhat over that, I guess. But uh, of course, man, excited to be talking to you guys today. We do have a bunch of different NBA headlines to touch on, just to kind of catch you guys up on everything that happened in the past week. Uh, before we dive into exactly what happened through the first three games of the NBA Finals, uh, overall, my big takeaways on the Finals and what we can expect moving forward in that series. So let's get into it, man. I feel like the most notable news actually dropped just a few hours ago, again, on June 7th here. Uh, it was originally tweeted by Chris Haynes of TNT and Bleacher Report, I want to say. And he had a, a bit of a bombshell tweet that essentially stated that Chris Paul of the Phoenix Suns was being waived and that he was going to enter free agency and be one of the top free agents in this upcoming class uh, that, of course, goes live on July 1st, I want to say. Uh, but then we got some conflicting reports after that tweet from Chris Haynes, right? Everybody kind of was shocked on Twitter. People gave their thoughts and concerns. And then it kind of pops up that Woj and Shams were actually tweeting that, no, he, he, you know, the Suns are just looking into their future with Chris Paul and were evaluating his options and, you know, making the decision whether they did want to release him or maybe they wanted to, you know, release him and then immediately resign him to structure his contract and open up more cap space. Or maybe they'd look into a trade. So, as of right now, uh, again, this is about 11.30 central time when I'm recording this, the Chris Haynes tweet is still up, so maybe he's you know not backing down and he's kind of uh, doubling down on that tweet that Chris Paul is eventually going to get released, which is pretty interesting, but um, it seems like I can't say with, with confidence that Chris Paul um, is definitely getting released. Maybe he ends up being traded or what, but at the very least, his future in Phoenix is murky, so I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a huge news, right? I do think for what it's worth that he's a really great fit with the Suns, namely because uh, they don't have many good players. Like, they are pretty thin, right? I feel like losing a guy who really helped turn around that team, right? I mean, people think about what the Suns were before Chris Paul came along. And they did have some talent. Obviously, Devin Booker had some big performances. And um, they certainly had accumulated some young talent in DeAndre Ayton as well. But everybody knows that the big turnaround happened in the first season that they had Chris Paul. Uh, him and Booker leading that team to the NBA Finals and, and coming within a few games of winning the whole thing. Uh, so it's pretty interesting to see that they'd move on from him. But obviously, again, ownership change in Phoenix. Uh, they bring in a new coach, which we will talk about here. They actually uh, signed Frank Vogel to be the next head coach of the team, a defensive-minded guy who, of course, won a championship with the Lakers just a couple years back. So that is what owner Matt Ishbia kind of gravitated towards, somebody with championship pedigree and a more defensive-minded philosophy. But again, you know, Phoenix could use a guy like that, right? They're, they're pretty short on good players here. They're certainly short at point guard depth. You know, you would expect them to kind of make a, a subsequent move to, to bring in more depth at that position. You can't, I can't imagine they're walking into the season uh, with campaign if he is even under contract for that team. But I think that Chris Paul would still garner a lot of attention on the market, right? I mean, there are, I don't know how much money he would bring in, but I, I would have to imagine he would still gain a lot of interest from other teams, right? Uh, you know, his experience in this league, you know, and, and again, I think if you're able to, you know, reduce Chris Paul's role to maybe more of a typical backup point guard to kind of keep him 
healthier and keep him fresher during the regular season and try to reduce the workload on him during that time period to try to maximize the odds that he's healthy for the playoffs would probably be in your best interest. But there are a lot of teams that want it, right? If he's somehow not with Phoenix and they don't end up working this thing out, and again, I still think he'd be a great fit in Phoenix, of course. Um, I think the Clippers would be a top option, right? Ironically enough, maybe getting him as a, a, a reunion with the Clippers, um, given their lack of depth at the point guard position, I, it'd be pretty hilarious to see uh, Chris Paul and potentially Westbrook on the same team if they brought him back. I'd have to imagine they'd only keep one of those guys there. You know, I also think a reunion with the Clippers would be fun because it's just like, hey, let's just take, you know, three of the worst injury bets in all of the NBA and just put them on the same team and roll the dice and hope that at least two of the three of them are healthy in Chris Paul. Uh, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I think that that could be a lot of fun. But again, I do think he's a really good fit for what that team needs. Again, they really only have Westbrook uh, at the point guard position right now, and they have Bones Highland. So I think the Clippers would be the top option if it's not Phoenix. I could also see him maybe going to a team like Miami. Obviously, they're one that is somehow contending for a title right now. And if they wanted to look to literally replace Kyle Lowry with just a better version of Kyle Lowry, I think Chris Paul would be a great option. No, I'm sure there are teams, you know, lower on the standings that would be interested in getting him. But again, I think he would have, uh, they would either want to do right by him by trading Chris Paul to a contending team, or if he hits free agency, I'd imagine at this point in his career, he only has interest in, in trying to win a championship at this point. So it is worth looking into. Maybe by the time the next episode comes out, we'll have some clarity on if he is going to be a member of the Suns or not. Uh, maybe he ends up just, you know, hitting the trade market pretty hard or he... Um, you know, just ends up being a free agent. So we can get more into that on the next episode. But we did have a little bit of clarity to the coaching carousel, some quick updates to run through here. Uh, you know, Monty Williams, the former coach of the Phoenix Suns, is now the head coach for the Detroit Pistons, and he got paid. Six years, $72 million contract for Monty Williams. He becomes the highest paid coach in the NBA, uh, which is pretty crazy. I think some people had some strong feelings about it, you know, um, again, I, I can't really, you know, beat up on Detroit too much. They're clearly trying to build a culture there, which I think is exciting. I think it is important for somebody to have uh, coaching stability. Teams at the top often have consistency at the coaching position. So if they want to commit to this guy, they, they you know, clearly felt good about Monty Williams being coach of the year the past two seasons and adding some st stability to a team that's had a lot of coaching turnover. So good for Monty Williams there. Uh, already kind of alluded to Frank Vogel going to Phoenix. He is he is the Monty Williams replacement there. And again, somebody who won a championship with the Lakers. Uh, so yeah, just, just a couple coaching updates there to discuss. But we did have some news that came out that again, I don't want to, you know, we've had two LeBron headlines in the past couple weeks here that I think are a total waste of breath. But uh, because they are LeBron headlines, they a lot of people want to talk about them. So I, I'd be remiss to not at least mention it. Um, there was a report from, again, uh, Sham Sharania of The Athletic that, uh, Kyrie put in a call uh, to LeBron James recruiting him to come to Dallas. Um, I'm sure it's, it's really just a fever dream uh, for Mavs fans at this point. I, I think they're probably the only people on the planet that actually believe in this because I certainly don't. Um, I, I think somebody pointed out, and they were pretty smart to do this, that, like, look, even though LeBron has flipped teams a bunch of times, he obviously went from Cleveland to Miami, back to Cleveland, and then to L.A., you know, I'm sure he prides himself on his legacy, right? Everything that LeBron does is calculated, but he's never actually asked out. He's never been traded, right? Um, every time he's left his team, he's done so once he has hit free agency. So I cannot Im imagine he would make an exception to that rule just to join Kyrie uh, in Dallas and be clearly second fiddle to Luka Doncic. Like, that is never in a million years going to happen. Now, I wouldn't rule out a Kyrie uh, and LeBron reunion at some point down the line, but for me, it's obviously way more feasible that that would somehow take place in Los Angeles if Kyrie wants to take some massive 
you know, discount and sign with the Lakers outright, or if it's some sort of sign and trade deal with the Mavericks and Lakers, I think that that is a possibility. But there is absolutely no chance in hell that LeBron James is ever going to suit up for the Dallas Mavericks. So let's just nip that one in the butt right away. And then uh, a couple weeks back, I, I think this maybe happened right after I put out the last episode, but there was a pretty interesting announcement from Adam Silver's uh, Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA, regarding Ja Morant, right? Um, we touched upon this a little bit, so I don't want to get into the event too much, but, you know, Ja was basically seen holding a gun again on Instagram Live, just, you know, a couple months removed from his short rehab stint and public apology and all that stuff, and uh, many people are up in arms about that, and clearly Adam Silver is one of those people, right? So they have launched, you know, an investigation into Ja Morant, right, and, and into the events uh, that took place on the days where he was seen holding a gun on Instagram Live, and so... Uh, Adam Silver made a, a pretty cryptic announcement saying that, you know, they did have some findings of the investigation, but they weren't going to fully announce the results because they did not want to take away from the coaches and players playing in the NBA Finals. So, you know, I do understand and respect that, but I feel like it's kind, it's kind of a lame move. I feel like, hey, like, we have some news, but we're not going to break it until the Finals end. So that it, it felt like he's setting up a pretty significant punishment just by the way that it was announced and so again you know for what it's worth i don't i don't love ja i don't think that's a secret i think what he did was really really dumb so uh i, I don't want to comment on it too much but assuming it, it, it's you know it's the surface level stuff that we can see is just a situation right assuming that the weapon wasn't illegal and um, it doesn't seem like he was really breaking any laws by doing what he was doing it was just really dumb for his brand and image I don't think he should be, you know, suspended for any more than like 10 games, five or 10 games, you know, just for that. But it seems like the NBA is going to have at least one more nugget of information that's going to come out that could really change, you know, what the Jaw situation represents. And so uh, a lot I've heard people say up to half the season wouldn't even be a surprise at this point. So that could really damage uh, the Grizzlies regular season record if they're playing without Jaw for an extended period of time. So. Uh, and that could also affect a lot of his brand deals and stuff because, you know, the longer he gets suspended, uh, the more common knowledge and more public attention this this incident is going to get. Again, I think it's been pushed under the rug a little bit because the Grizzlies aren't playing right now and the finals is going on, of course. So uh, it is just worth noting that it does seem like there's a pretty significant Joss suspension looming over this NBA finals that we should get some clarity on within the next week or so. So more comments on that as well. And so we did have one last NBA you know, headline that went around today. Um, I'm just going to let you guys kind of do your own research. It doesn't really seem like something I, I should be diving into too much on this podcast. But if you have Twitter and you have some free time, uh, you know, Zion Williamson, he made some headlines today. Uh, you know, they weren't basketball related. He's okay. They weren't injury related, but he made headlines today. We'll leave it at that. I would, I would say check Twitter uh, if you're looking for a good chuckle regarding Zion Williamson. Uh, he certainly made some headlines today. All right, let's move on to the NBA Finals. Finally, right, man? So let's talk about it. Before I give my overarching thoughts and takeaways on this series, um, let's just do what we usually do and just kind of go through a recap of all the games, kind of give you the Spark Notes version just so we can all be on the same page with my analysis. And then after that, I'll kind of give you my overarching thoughts, right? So game one, um, that was almost exactly a week ago now, It'll be a week from uh, tomorrow, uh, took place on June 1st. Um, that one, the Nuggets ended up pulling out on top, right? They ended up winning 104 to 93. And this one was a tough one for me. I'm just going to vent to you guys for a second here. You know, normally I'm I'm really jazzed up for the NBA Finals regardless of who's playing. But I don't know if it was some combination of obviously my team being in the Finals last year and 
uh, just being a couple days removed from a heartbreaking Game 7 loss to the Heat. But this one was tough for me to get excited for. I really, you know, did not give a shit about this game whatsoever when it started. And maybe it was just because the game itself wasn't too competitive. And again, I was probably just too close to the Heat series loss for me to get into it. So my focus was, I wasn't super locked in on this one. I had to kind of watch it back and, and go through the tape and, you know, see what I ended up missing. So this one was a hard watch for me. I'm sure it was a hard watch for you guys too with how uncompetitive the game was. But I wanted to vent about that first. But let's just kind of go through some of the big takeaways because it was a pretty convincing win for the Nuggets at home in game one. Um, some of the things that I, I've noticed that were pretty obvious from the gate, um, I, I did some speculation on what exactly the defensive matchups were going to be, uh, and they were pretty clear, right? Jimmy Butler uh, you know, was guarded by Aaron Gordon virtually the entirety of that game. Uh, Nikola, Nikola Jokic was guarded by Bam Adebayo almost the, entirely, uh, almost the entirety of that game as well. You know, Miami did break out the zone in spurts in game one. It was pretty interesting that the first time that they went to that zone uh, was the second that that uh, Jokic rested uh, for the first time in the first quarter. And they kind of used it sparingly throughout the game. Uh, but the big takeaway was, like, Miami was never really in this game. And in large part, it's because they got a, a combined one of 17 shooting from Max Struess and Caleb Martin. And so this one really stung for me too. Again, this is the last I'm going to talk about the Celtics, I promise. But what a slap in the face it is to, again, literally it, it felt like this could have been our series, right? Because it was just like, you know, two or three days after game seven. And we have to watch the dude Caleb Martin that there were, you know, people were bitching about on Twitter, this guy not getting the Eastern Conference Finals MVP. And then he goes and he shoots, you know, what? Like, I think he hit the one shot. I think he was one of seven and Struess was 0 of 10. And so to watch those guys come crashing back down to earth after Martin especially was literally the second best player in the series uh, during the previous round uh, was really fitting and it really stung like a bitch. I'm not going to lie. So uh, that was pretty frustrating. Miami was not over uh, able to overcome those the shortcomings of those guys. And I want to say Jimmy only had like 13 points in game one as well. He was uh, a pretty disappointing effort from Jimmy overall in that one, but they don't, they only ended up losing by about 11 points. Game two, certainly that was the most fun game of the series so far. Uh, Miami shocked a lot of people, including myself, and they were able to defeat Denver for the first time uh, at home, the first time Denver lost at home in this entire playoff run here, and the Heat ended up winning by three points, 111-108. to 108. Um, So really, it was a, a back-and-forth game throughout. Um, they were able to you know, really just kind of hang around, and then they dropped a massive 36-point fourth quarter uh, to kind of secure the win and, and, and steal the win uh, on the road in Denver. And really, this run in the fourth quarter uh, was sparked by Duncan Robinson, right? Duncan Robinson had zero points. I don't even think he took a shot through the first three quarters of the game. And then, boom, right at the start of the fourth quarter, the dude got hot, knocked down some threes back-to-back. -back. He finished with 10 points in that quarter of four or five shooting. And Miami took a pretty significant lead there. I think they were only up by, like, six or seven points at that point. But they really never looked back and kind of held the Nuggets off the rest of the way. Uh, and Gabe Vincent was unbelievable in this one, man. He was really good in, in game one as well. But in this one especially, he had 23 points on 8-12 to 12 shooting. Um, and while guys like Caleb Martin have kind of crumbled in the NBA Finals, um, Gabe Vincent has really rose to the occasion. It's unbelievable how fearless that guy is on the court for a dude that was undrafted. Like, he really is like a, gun, a gunslinger out there. He's a perfect fit for what Miami needs, considering they are obviously pretty limited on offense. But he was really special in this game. Uh, you know, overall, it was still pretty interesting that Miami was able to win this thing because it was pretty rough shooting from Jimmy. Um, you know, he was shooting pretty poorly down the stretch. But granted, Jimmy's going to do what Jimmy's going to do, right? I, I think Mike Breen kind of called him out in the broadcast.
podcast. And then sure as shit, he scores eight points in the fourth quarter that were a big eight points. He shot three of five in the fourth, um, hit some big free throws down the stretch as well. And, and he really just came up big when they needed him the most, right? Um, you know, and Miami really forced Jokic to beat them as a scorer, right? I kind of had a feeling that they were going to go to that before game two, like kind of approach the Jokic situation the same way, you know, teams that played like the 06 Suns with Steve Nash did, right? I think some some teams pretty famously beat the 06 Suns and, and the Suns during, you know, Steve Nash's MVP uh, seasons just by being like, hey, let's just make Steve Nash get 40 points, right? Because we know he wants to pass the ball. We know he wants to get his teammates involved, but like, let's force him to shoot. Now, granted, he's a talented offensive player, but the damage that he can cause individually is not as uh, detrimental to us as, you know, Steve Nash or Jokic in this situation, getting his teammates involved and, and just being, uh, you know, a five-headed attack on offense. And so they really did make it hard on Jokic. They, they made him shoot the ball a lot. I think he took 28 shots, which is obviously high for him. Uh, you know, he did make 16 of the shots and finished with 41 points. He was pretty unbelievable in the game. But again, Miami was just able to hang around for long enough, get hot at the right time and, and close out, you know, close out the Nuggets in a pretty impressive way. Um, they did go to zone a little bit more in game two as well. Um, you know, again, really making Jokic's life hard by denying him the ball at the free throw line. Somehow they would have like two guards kind of denying him the ball, but were still able to make sure that their rotations were crisp enough to not leave wide open shooters. Um, MPJ was really bad in this game as well as he's been for most of the series at this point, you know, just putting up six and six. And again, Miami is able to steal game two with a pretty average Jimmy Butler game overall. And then finally, that brings us to tonight, right? Game three, Nuggets end up beating the Heat again. Uh, Nuggets end up winning this game by 15 points, 109 to 94. And this one was an absolute masterclass from Jokic and Jamal Murray. Both players, Jokic and Murray, put up 30-point triple-doubles. It was absolutely ridiculous to watch. It really did feel like those two guys had the ball in their hands the entirety of the game. There were stats throughout that, you know, Jokic and Murray had, like, scored or assisted on, like, all of the the Nuggets points in like the first two quarters or something crazy like that. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure on the game they, they scored or assisted on like 80 to 90% of the buckets uh, that the, the Nuggets ended up putting up. But uh, Jokic finished with 32, 21, and 10 and two blocks on 57% shooting while Murray chipped in 34 points. Uh, 10 rebounds, 10 assists on 55% shooting. But I know that the headline, because these guys both finished with the triple-double, I know Murray secured like the final rebound in the closing seconds, not trying to discredit him, but he probably could have been out of the game uh, at that point when they were up 15. But he did get the last rebound, and he secured the triple-double, so that's going to be the headline. But it is worth mentioning that Christian Brown was incredible in this game, too. Um, he's been someone that, you know, kind of fell out of the rotation a little bit against the Lakers. Like, they, you know, I know he was always in their eight-man rotation throughout this playoff run but they kind of cut the rotation down to seven and he was the odd man out against the lakers but he's been back in a big way and he was awesome tonight especially uh 15 points on seven of eight shooting he's been really feisty on defense as well i think he had three steals the other night and he had another steal on this game as well he's just a hustle player um you know, doing everything he can and doing everything that rookies should do to get time in a series like this and so really impressive that they're having a rookie on this stage that even wasn't that high of a draft pick i want to say so for him to step up and be a real contributor in this series is pretty special uh and bam and jimmy on their end you know they ended up filling up the stat sheet a little bit they weren't the most efficient in doing that but they didn't get a lot of help um uh, you know the with the rest of the miami roster right jimmy ends up putting up 28 points on 24 shots obviously again not great shooting there bam had 22 and 17 but again he did that on 21 shots so you know Jimmy shooting you know i think a little less than 40 percent bam shooting like 33 percent from the field 
that's not going to cut it, man, because obviously Denver's trying to make their life hard, but, you know, they're getting decent shots, right? Both of those guys kind of live in the mid-range area. I know Jimmy likes to get downhill and get to the hoop, um, and he did a pretty good job of attacking this game, probably better job than he did earlier games in the series. But it's tough, man. They just, you know, it's one of those games where, where again, if you're not getting those special performances from a guy like Gabe Vincent, who kind of came back down to earth this game, Caleb Martin had his best game of the series, but I think he still only had like, you know, seven or nine points or something like that. He really wasn't special. I know he had a, a nice little run in the third quarter there, but yeah, man, it's just going to be tough to beat Jokic and Murray when they're playing like that. But for, for Miami's credit, they did hang around. They were up at several different points in this game. Uh, but ultimately, the Murray-Jokic two-man game was just a little too much for, for Miami to overcome. So with three games of the NBA Finals behind us, you know, where does that leave us, right? Obviously, just kind of gave you guys the spark notes of what happened the first three games of the series. So let me just kind of, you know, ramble on with my overarching thoughts on the series and what we can kind of expect moving forward. So... First and foremost, look, we knew Denver was the better team coming in, um, and they have been. And But this is a real series, right? This is, first and foremost, this is a real series. I was pretty shocked to see Miami even win one of the two games in Denver. Again, my, my pick before this series was that Denver was going to end up winning this thing in five games. But I thought that they were going to go undefeated at home throughout this entire postseason run, as difficult as that sounds. I thought that they were going to win the first two games at home in Denver, especially on such short rest for Miami. But, you know, they were able to do what they had to do, right? They stole one of the first two games. That's all the road team needs to do is split the first two games of the series, and they were able to do that. And it's never going to be easy, right? Like, even a game like tonight, you know, that ended up being a 15-point win, it was actually a lot closer than that if you watch the games. Like, I know, you know, Denver pulled away late, and they were pretty impressive in the fourth quarter. But um, even, like, they, they ended up emptying their benches. And Miami, like, low-key, like, made it a close game, and they cut it back down to nine points. And there was almost a flagrant foul on Jamal Murray where he, like, threw an elbow, and I think Caleb Martin took one to the face. And if they had actually ruled it a flagrant foul, it would have been two shots in the ball for Miami, so they would have had the lead probably down to seven with the ball at that point. Like, they're just never out of these games. And so you got to give Miami credit that even though they're they're clearly fighting an uphill battle, um, I, as always, I'm not giving the Heat enough credit. And they were, you know, they're going to make this a competitive series either way. Um, another, you know, big takeaway, of course, is that, you know, watching Jokic diagnose Miami's in-game adjustments, like, in real time, like, as they're happening is is amazing, right? Like, I understand that with these two teams especially, there's so much higher-level basketball stuff that I obviously can't comprehend. And, you know, I, at this point, I'm not just going to go super far into the weeds on, on you know, how exactly they're approaching their offense and, and what defensive strategies they're imploring on each and every possession during the game. Like, I don't think that's exactly what my role should be with my basketball knowledge and what you guys want to hear per se. But it is cool, right? Because what Miami does on, on a spark notes level, right, is they're caught like... It's not just simple, like, hey, they played a lot of zone, right? And the Celtics, I mean, maybe they did against the Celtics, right? Like, the Celtics couldn't figure out the zone to save their life. But, you know, they don't just sit in the zone for, like, a quarter at a time. Like, they do it something differently when, when the Nuggets make a substitution. Or, you know, if, if they have a weaker defender out there that they want to hide. Or if they just want to do something after a made basket to kind of throw, throw Denver off from their offense. Or they really can't stop the two-man game, like, they can go to it. So, they just are, you know, kind of they kind of have to just kind of pick their spots and treat treat Jokic like you would treat like almost like a, a defense in football, right? Like you just have to, Jokic can't know what's coming. He can't, he can't expect a certain defense out there because he's already going to know how to beat it before the play starts. And so knowing that Miami is constantly mixing up how they are approaching guarding Jokic on each and every play and still having him find a way to 
figure out a solution to that and get an open look for himself or his teammate, usually Jamal Murray, like it was tonight, is really special. And the two-man game for Jokic and Murray, I know I had some high praise for it on my last podcast. I probably undersold it because what we saw tonight was truly amazing. And again, there's a lot of great duos in the NBA that come to mind. Of course, Tatum and Brown and Booker and Durant and you know Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland or some others that come to mind, right? But nothing remotely compares to Jokic and Murray because of how well they played together. When both of those guys are hitting their shots, and again, I... I I genuinely believe that you can, like, will Jokic ever have a bad shooting game with the quality of looks that he gets and, and the touch that that guy has around the rim? I doubt it. But especially when Murray is cooking, like, those guys are unstoppable. And it really is a special two-man game that is just really rare in, in today's NBA. So I hope everybody's kind of appreciating how how dominant they've been. Um, and that being said, on a negative, one more, one last point on the, on the Nuggets here. You know, the negative has been that, like, Michael Porter Jr. has been kind of a, a total non-factor, at least on the offensive end of the court. I know he's still been pretty dominant on the boards and, and has given them a boost there. He's averaging seven points a game. Uh, you know, he is getting about nine rebounds a game. Uh, but he's doing so on 25% shooting. He just hasn't been able to get in a rhythm whatsoever. I don't know if, if that's something that Miami is doing schematically or he's just having a tough go of it. But, you know, for them to kind of cut off the third option and, and just really make it about Jokic and Murray and, and Denver still found a way to win is pretty impressive. But... All that being said, all that praise for Denver, and, I, and again, I probably undersold how good those guys have been. You know, Miami, again, they're in a fine spot, right? If they're down one, you know, one, two in a series, that's that's not awful for them being the road team, right? Like, obviously, game four, you know, at home basically becomes a must-win at this point. But, you know, they're fine. I think if you would ask them where they expected to be after three games, I think they'd, they'd probably honestly tell you that they expected to be down one, two. And they're comfortable in that spot, even though this is the first time in, the, in this postseason run that they've been in that spot. Uh, again, my prediction before this series was, again, Denver in five, because I was just like, hey, I'm, I'm chalking up that one Miami win to a historically good Jimmy Butler game where he's the best player on the court, bar none, uh, because, again, we've seen him do that in basically every single series at this point, especially in Milwaukee with some of his best work. Uh, so I expected him to have at least one game this series where he went nuclear and they end up winning the game because of that. The good thing for Miami is is Jimmy hasn't been that guy and they still were able to steal one of those wins. Now, is that Jimmy Butler game coming, though? You know, my gut probably tells me yes, because you can never bet against Jimmy Butler. But it doesn't really look likely from what we've seen, right? If you're just looking at the last three games, he he doesn't look necessarily like the same guy. Like, I'm not saying he's he's bad or anything like that. He's still probably the Heat's best option. But... Uh, you know, I think before tonight, like, you know, Gabe Vincent and Bam Adebayo have been scoring much more than him in games one and two. I know he was probably their leading scorer tonight, but he looks kind of tired out there. I think defensively, this is the most that the Heat have asked of him. Because again, I mentioned this on my last podcast, but the Heat haven't been exactly great at, at guarding like dominant point guards. And they haven't, um, I know that they, you know, were able to beat the Knicks. And I would argue that Jalen Brunson was actually pretty dominant in that series, but he, he kind of did whatever he wanted, right? Jalen Brunson had a fantastic series where he, I think he averaged over 30 points a game on great shooting. Um, it was just a matter of the rest of the team not being able to hold up their end of the deal. And that's why they were able to, you know, they lost that game, that series pretty convincingly, but so they really haven't stopped a dominant point guard. And Jamal Murray is about as tough of an excitement for Jimmy Butler as you're going to get at this point, uh, because he has been the one guarding Jamal Murray for most of the series from what I could tell. 
Uh, and I think it just really wears on him on the offensive end, right? I mean, all these guys are playing, you know, 40-plus minutes a night. You know, he, he's coming off a grueling seven-game series where he left it all on the court. It's just a lot to ask of him on both ends of the court where I feel like, you know, Murray and Jokic have been able to hide a little bit more on defense, and, and that's why their offense hasn't suffered as much. So, you know, if you're betting on the Heat and you're betting on Jimmy Butler, I would, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he does have one of those, you know, historic Jimmy Butler games where he goes off for 40 plus points and is able to single-handedly win them to a win. And then we could be looking at a tie series again, if you do expect that to come, it just doesn't seem as likely in this series as it was in some of the other series. Um, another note is that this Miami zone defense, it's, it's not going away, right? As I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, um, they picked their spots so well with it. It was kind of dumb of me to say on my last podcast, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but it was dumb of me to say like, hey, you, you can't play zone against Denver because Miami's smart, right? It is, it is a tool in their toolbox that they that is always going to be there for them. And it's something that they can use in spurts. And it honestly really helped them win game two, as we talked about. But what I like about what they do with the zone is, is they have a couple different spots where they've repeatedly gone to it, right? Again, when Jokic is out, out of the game, they usually go to it for at least a possession or two because they feel better about the shots uh, that they can force Miami into when Jokic is on the court. They go to it a lot more when they have their weakest defender in Duncan Robinson out there so they don't have to you know, stick him on a guy like Michael Porter Jr. or Aaron Gordon or something like that because they're just, you know, Denver is going to be smart enough to exploit that matchup. And then finally, they can go to the zone. Like if if Jokic and Murray really get cooking again, you're, you're probably not stopping those guys. But if you play zone against them in that situation, at least it limits how much Jokic and Murray can manipulate what's going on out there. Because if it's just straight man-to-man, they can get whatever matchup they want. They can have Jokic be the ball handler and Murray be the screener or vice versa. You know, they can switch and, and you know, kind of set an off-ball screen to get, like, a pre-switch and hunt out, you know, a Gabe Vincent or something like that. Like, you know, they can do a lot of different things there where, you know, in zone, it's, again, it's unpredictable. They might not even know what's coming, and they're not going to be able to manipulate manipulate that in the two-man game as much so it just gives Denver a different look uh, that they have to adapt to so that zone isn't going away and I think they've gone to it at really smart times so even with Miami you know really fighting in this series a little bit more than I even thought that they would be doing uh, you know they really are struggling to overcome the loss of of basically a superstar right (laughs) like Caleb Martin it sounds so dumb but he was again he literally outplayed you know, Jalen Brown and potentially Jason Tatum for an entire playoff series in the Eastern Conference Finals. And now the dude is averaging, you know, five points a game that he, you know, bolstered a little bit tonight. I think he had exactly three points in the first two games and he had like nine points tonight or something like that. So, yeah, not great from Caleb Martin. Um, you know, of course, they've been able to pick up the slack a little bit with with the production from Gabe Vincent, who I mentioned has been amazing. He's averaging 16 points a game, you know, for the series. So there is some hope there. But the question that I have is, will Miami hit the Tyler Harrow button, right? Will they break him out? Because my initial thought before the series is, like, they act like they shouldn't unless they're desperate, right? If they fall down 0-2 to Denver. Like, I felt like game three was the game, right? The first game back in Miami was probably the game where you'd end up either make, making the decision on him, right? If they were 0-2, I would have said, yeah, they probably bring him back because they probably need to mix it up, bring in some more offense, inject some more offense, um, you know, into the team and whatnot. But because they, again, like we talked about before, split the first two games, they were in a fine spot. They wanted to see how this lineup would do tonight. And again, they fought pretty well, but they're now they're down 1-2, right? 
And I feel like this is the last game in game four, the last opportunity to bring back Tyler Hero, right? I don't think you want to bring him back in Denver and have him play at altitude and have him play in a hostile environment where, again, they've only lost once this entire postseason run. I know that doesn't make a big difference for them, but I'm sure there's a comfort factor uh, to have Harrow play at home in front of the whole, the home crowd that could hopefully give them uh, a spark here. So I think that they should do it. And again, I would have said you only should do it if you're desperate. I don't think Miami's necessarily desperate, but just kind of like look at look at what's happening for Miami, right? You have to take you kind of forget everything from from the previous rounds and focus on what you have this series, right? It's not like Caleb Barton is an actual superstar, and again, he's been very good for them this entire playoff run. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but he is closer. To what, what he's doing right now is a lot closer to the normal Caleb Martin than last series was. Like, if you had to pick one of either his, his series against the Celtics or what we've seen through three games against the Nuggets, you would say that the Celtics series is the anomaly, right? If he's not playing like a superstar, right, and Max Struess, who I can't stand, has been absolute dog shit as well, right? What is what is Struess averaging this series? I think he's averaging, like, less than five points a game, too, or around there. I know he shot the ball decently well last game, but he's been really bad, too. And these guys aren't, I mean, Martin's a really solid defender, but Struess isn't anything special on the defensive end. You obviously have, you know, Duncan Robinson out there that, who they have to hide on defense. If you have guys like that that are out there anyway, you might as well roll your dice with, with your second best offensive player in Tyler Harrow, or at least your second best offensive player during the regular season. Like, I know it was the bubble, but, hi, you know, Harrow has had some moments. He's played in an NBA Finals. I think he's only one of, like, three people from that past Miami team that played in the, in the 2020 finals that's still with the team, right? I think that was his rookie year, and I think it's really only him. I, I guess you could make the... I, I, we have Udonis Haslam too, right? But I, the main guys that actually played in both series were Butler, Bam, and Harrow. So I feel like you kind of want to bring him back, right? Like, obviously Spolstra has the balls to, like, if it's not working, sit his ass down, right? And I think he needs to understand that more than anybody. But th again, this is a guy who's played in the NBA Finals. I know it was the bubble, but he had big moments during that Finals. He's not, you know, I don't like Tyler Harrow, but he's not a dude that's really seems like he'd be scared of the moment. And I just feel like if this series continues on the trajectory that it is, the Nuggets are going to win. They're going to win in five games. Maybe if they're lucky, Miami forces game six. And I feel like if you're Miami and your Heat fans especially, you'd rather go down knowing that you had your best players on the court, or you, at least you gave your best players the opportunity. I know Miami's been on this miracle run, but again, they've been in the driver's seat in every single series up to this point. They won the first game of every series um, so far, right? They've never been down in a, in a series. They've never been trailing until this series like they were after game one and like they are right now being down one, two. So it's a totally different situation, and I feel like it makes sense for them to at least sprinkle in some Tyler Harrow and see if you can relieve some of the offensive burden from a guy like Jimmy Butler, where maybe you can steal a game where you don't need Jimmy Butler to score 40 points like they were able to do in game one. And I just feel like it's more likely that Hero comes back and contributes in a big way more than, you know, Caleb Martin or Max Strews turning it around in miracle fashion at this point. So that's my two cents. And that's obviously a massive adjustment that Miami can make. And again, I feel like they have to do it before game four, because once it gets to game five, you know, I guess you could still can because you're going to be pretty desperate at that point if they're down 3-1 or whatever and they want to try to bring him back. Like, go for it. But I feel like you'd be much more comfortable if he is ready to play to bring him back in front of the home crowd in Miami for game four and see if you can kind of catch them off guard and throw a different matchup at them and see if he can get hot and hopefully, you know, swing the series there. But, you know, Denver, they don't need to be super special to win this series, right? Like, they can do it with their version of average offense and just playing solid on defense and not letting, you know, 
low talent guys or, or lower, uh, you know, below star talent guys in Caleb Martin and, and you know, Max Struess, as long as those guys don't get hot and end up beating them in the series, you know, they just need to be, you know, average on offense and, and play solid defense and they'll be able to, uh, to pull this thing out. It'll be interesting to see as well if they, you know, continue to go with the make Jokic beat them approach that they went with in game two that obviously ended up being successful for them in game two. And it seems like they maybe took a similar approach to that tonight, but you know, it seems like Jokic is beating them, right? He nearly beat them in game two. They ended up only losing by three points. And I should mention that Jamal Murray got a really good look for three. Not a really good look, but a solid look for three. You know, he's hit that shot many a times before to nearly tie up the game at the end of regulation in game two and send that thing to overtime in which who knows what would have happened if it had actually got to the overtime period. So, you know, Miami barely sneaks out a win, forcing Jokic to beat them in game two. You know, Jokic had obviously some big help from Murray and Christian Brown tonight, but, um, you know, he's been holding up his end of the deal so it'll be interesting to see if Miami has some defensive wrinkles and adjustments to throw at them I just can't sit here and, and talk to you guys and pretend to predict what you know the, the most brilliant coach in the entire league has to throw up his sleeve I'm sure he has some tricks left but I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know what's coming to expect from them defensively in in game four and beyond but I do think that they will and I think that they should bring back Tyler Hero for game four I think it's worth a shot to at least give him some limited minutes and uh, hopefully we keep up with this series, man. I have to give give the Heat a lot of credit. Once I got over myself in game one and, and kind of sat back and, and I was able to kind of enjoy the series. And game game two was really fun uh, to watch Miami somehow find a way to win that game. And shout out my guy Chuck, uh, Charles Bonasaro. Give him a follow on Twitter. He's a man. He had a really great tweet after game two. And he was like, watching your favorite team play the Heat is like being the main character in an episode of Black Mirror, which I thought was hilarious. It is crazy to watch Miami steal a win against Denver, who I thought was kind of levitating above everybody else. And they find a way to kind of, you know, drag them into their swamp and win the same way that they did against the Bucks, the same way they did against the Knicks, the same way they did against the Celtics. You know, just hang around in these close games and find a way to win. So... You know, that that game two was obviously much more entertaining than game one. I, I enjoyed watching the special performance from Jokic and Murray tonight. But I think that just about does it for me tonight. Obviously, relatively short podcast here with only one series to talk about. But I will be back next week with another episode recapping probably the rest of the NBA Finals at this point and maybe any other news and updates that we have between now and then. But before I let you guys go, of course, I have to remind you to follow at Words with Wallace on everything that includes Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast, be sure to rate and review the show. You know, feel free to share the show, tell a friend, at least give it a download. You know, even if you don't listen, just hit me with that download button. Uh, goes a long way for my ego. We we know that that's out of control already, but it'd be huge to to help this podcast grow. So with that, I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.